Thank you, Rabbi Hain, for your introduction, which was totally unnecessary. Chashavarabadim that are assembled here today, Chaverim Nechbadim, as you notice, based upon the program that was given you this morning, the basic topic of discussion this afternoon <coughs> is entitled The Confronting of Religious Dilemmas, and specifically the religious dilemmas that the Rabbanim face in their rabbinate. Before I take the pleasure of introducing the speakers that will address us on two very important topics this afternoon, I'd like to start off the program with a little conceptualization of what the problems are vis-a-vis -vis Rabbanim in the field today. We find when it comes to defining the role of Shevet Levi in the Chumash, that the Torah says, that the basic purpose of Shevet Levi was to teach and disseminate the Torah to Klal Yisrael. We find that the name given to the teachers of Shevet Levi is the term Kohen. And for this reason the Torah says in Pasha Shoftim, it was the Kohanim who were supposed to teach Klal Yisrael the Torah which HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us at Harasinai. Rav Hirsch in his commentary on Chumash explains that when it comes to the word Kohen there are two very important connotations meant by this name given to this very, very unique individual. Kohen means lohachin, to prepare Klal Yisrael. And what this means in definitive terminology is that the Kohen was supposed to teach Klal Yisrael Torah to give them the requisite knowledge that they require to perform the mitzvahs of the Torah. But at the same point in time, the word Kohen means lechonin, to lead, to direct. And the Kohen, by his personal conduct, was supposed to serve as a role model to Klal Yisrael on how they themselves are supposed to conduct their own lives in the realm of spirituality. In fact, the last of the Nevi'im, Malachi says, Ki sivtsei koyim yishmu what is Malachi mean by this statement? And our first points out that the twofold purpose of the Kohen is basically being depicted by Malachi in this Pasuk. On one hand, the Sfasim of the Kohen have to be Yishmeru Das. They are the Makkah, they are the source of Halakha for Klau Yisrael. But at the same point in time, they have to remember that they have to be doma, they have to be similar to Amala Hashem Tzifakos. This is the way the Gemara interprets it in Mesechus Malikotim. That when it comes to the personality, when it comes to the lifestyle of a Kohen, 
of a leader of Klal Yisrael, it has to have angelic qualities. It has to be a unique type of lifestyle in order to inspire the other members of Klal Yisrael likewise to dedicate themselves to the Rabbi Shalom and his Torah. The Rambam points out at the end of that even though initially this job of being a Mechid and Mechonin was given to Shevet Levi nevertheless the Rambam continues and states that any Jew in Klal Yisrael has the right to assume this type of spiritual leadership and to likewise be a Mechin and Mechonin on Klal Yisrael. Naram uses a very interesting expression. Venasa Kodesh Kedoshim. He becomes enveloped with Kedusha, with sanctity. And I believe, according to this Rambam, this is the Makkah for that Rabbanis that we have today in the field. That our Koyach of Rabbanis, even though we might not be Kohanim, even though many of us might not be Levim, but nevertheless, according to the Rambam, when it comes to being a functionary, to being a minister, on a spiritual level, even though it was initially given to the Levim, we nevertheless have the right to also assume this position and to function accordingly. Since I'm speaking to Rabbanim, it's not necessary for me to elaborate what the life of a rabbi means. However, we all are aware of the fact that besides of the Shu'ulei Torah that we give daily, besides the public speeches we give on a continual basis, one of the most important parts of a rabbi's job is the pastoral counseling we have to give to the various balabatim in our synagogue. And when it comes to pastoral counseling, probably one of the most difficult topics to answer, to explore, is the topic which we're going to be discussing in a couple of minutes, and that is the topic of Tzadik Baralai, Barashi V'Tavlo. When a balabas comes to us and asks us, Rebbe, why is this happening to me? A Rav has to have some type of perspective, some type of idea, how to give a logical answer to this question. And for this reason, we've asked a very eminent scholar, Dr. Sid Lyman, who is presently the professor of Jewish history and literature of Yish University, and likewise the past dean of the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Yish University, to address us today to perhaps give us some perspectives how we as the Rabbanim in the field can guide our Rabbalabatim in trying to answer this question that seems unanswerable. I therefore take this opportunity to call Dr. Lyman to the podium now. Let us hope that through his discourse we will receive some type of enlightenment in this topic. In an article that first appeared in print in 1945, the Rav wrote as follows. The error of modern representatives of religion 
is that they promise their congregants the solution to all problems of life, an expectation which religion does not fulfill. Religion, on the contrary, deepens the problems but never intends to solve them. The grandeur of religion lies in its mysterium tremendum, its magnitude, and its ultimate incomprehensibility. To cite one example, we may adduce the problem of theodicy, the justification of evil in the world that has tantalized the inquiring mind from time immemorial till this last tragic decade. The acuteness of this problem has grown for the religious person in essence and dimensions. When a minister, rabbi, or priest attempts to solve the ancient question of Job's suffering through a sermon or lecture, he does not promote religious ends, but on the contrary, does them a disservice. The beauty of religion with its grandiose vistas reveals itself to man not in solutions, but in problems, not in harmony, but in the constant conflict of diversified forces and trends. Unfortunately, the wisdom of the Rav was not heeded by Harold Kushner, author of a recent Jewish bestseller, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner confronts the problem of theodicy and resolves it by espousing essentially a 17th and 18th century deist theology unacceptable either to traditional Judaism or to modern philosophy. The volume is so thoroughly flawed that despite the well-meaning intentions of its author, it simply does not merit serious rebuttal. <coughs> what I would like to do then this afternoon is needed to solve the problem of theodicy the Rav has already indicated that cannot be done, nor to review Kushner's volume. Instead, if I may paraphrase Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato in his introduction to the Mesilas Yisharim, I shall attempt to remind you of what you already know. That is, I shall attempt to review the problem of theodicy and its solutions from a Jewish perspective and within a historical setting. Such a review and reminder will simplify the task of any rabbi who is intent on responding directly to Kushner's volume. For all others, Ein Beis Medrash Velochidush, and I would hope that this discussion will stimulate them to productive scholarship even as they demolish some of my arguments. And often enough, one student's speculation leads to scholars establishing the facts. The term theodicy was first introduced by Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz the noted 17th century German philosopher and mathematician. Its etymolo etymological meaning is roughly, roughly vindication of God. And of course the problem it deals with is the coexistence of a just God and evil. 
The problem of theodicy is much older than the 17th century. It is as older than the term itself. All theodicies, be they ancient, medieval, or modern, attempt to solve the following problem. If God is just, why does he permit suffering and injustice? Why does he tolerate evil in the world he created? The dilemma was perhaps most succinctly stated by Lactantius, a fourth century church father, who drawing upon an earlier formulation by Epicurus, the third century BC Greek philosopher, posed the theodicy problem as follows, quote, either God can prevent suffering and does not do so, in which case he cannot be good, or he wishes to prevent suffering and cannot do so, in which case he cannot be omnipotent, unquote. Jews, perhaps because they have suffered the wrath of the Lord more so than most other peoples, have explored the problem of theodicy throughout their long history, beginning with the biblical period. What I would like to do now is to trace with you some Jewish approaches to the problem of theodicy, indeed from the biblical period through modern times. A preliminary word about evil is in order. Evil takes many forms, and whenever a, a theodicy is suggested, one must know which evil is being addressed by the theodicy. There is more or less a modern scholarly consensus which recognizes three major categories of evil. They are one, metaphysical evil, this defects in creation itself. Certain creatures appear, appear to be defective or to seem to serve no useful purpose. Why weren't all animals endowed with intelligence? What useful purpose do scorpions and black widow spiders serve? Why didn't God create the world in such a way that all human beings would always freely choose to do good? These are some of the questions under the category of metaphysical evil. The second category, natural evil. Physical pain caused by various natural events. Why do human beings die in floods or in earthquakes? Why are men struck down by lightning? Why do children die? The third category is moral evil. Why do men intentionally violate God's will, what we call sin? Or why do men intentionally harm each other? It will prove helpful to bear these categories in mind as we survey the various Jewish approaches to theodicy. And it will become apparent to you as we move through history that not all these categories are treated everywhere in Jewish literature. We begin with the biblical period. Theodicy is a problem only if one postulates three suppositions. One, that God exists. Two, that God is just. Three, that evil exists. And all these assumptions are posited in Tanakh and appear again and again throughout the biblical narrative. I don't have to go much further than Avram Havinu, his famous defense of the righteous citizens of Sodom, 
חלילה לכל מייסוס כדבר הזה, להומיס צדיק עם ראשו, והיה כצדיק כראשו, חלילה לכל השופט כל הארץ לא יעשה משפט. The biblical view is clear. God does not act capriciously, he is a just God. Regarding evil, its existence is assumed throughout Tanakh. And at one very famous point in Tanakh, Ishayahu 45.7, we read, Yotzer Or, Uvore Choshech, Ose Shalom, Uvore Ra, Ani Hashem, Ose Kol Eleh. God is just, evil exists, the problem of theodicy cannot be far behind. And indeed, it is present throughout Tanakh, not only in Sefer Eov, discussed in the Torah, in the Vim, and in Ksuvan. The normative biblical view, which modern scholars like to call the Deuteronomist because it appears prominently in Sefer Dvarim and in Sefer Yoshua Shoftim Shmuel Malachim based on Sefer Dvarim, teaches that reward and punishment are earned. When B'nai Yisrael obey the Torah, they are rewarded. When B'nai Yisrael violate the Torah, they are punished. Whatever suffering exists, B'nai Yisrael brings upon itself. In Tanakh, all of Jewish history, including the military victories and defeats of the various Malchai Yisrael, are interpreted in the light of this teaching. Not only nations are judged, but individuals are judged as well. They too are responsible for their deeds that each individual is accountable for his actions and that the righteous do not suffer for the sins of the wicked is stressed, especially in Sefer Yechezkeel, in a very famous pasuk that I'll come back to a little later, chapter 18, The soul that sins, it shall die. If a man is righteous, he shall live. There are dissenting views in Tanakh, minority views. They don't often get discussed publicly. The first parak of Sefer Chabakuk, the third parak of Sefer Malachi, and especially what is discussed publicly most often, Sefer Eov. Eov is convinced of his innocence, yet he suffers. He cannot account for God's apparent injustice. What's left unclear is how the problem is resolved at the end of Sefer Eov. The closing chapters seem to suggest that man cannot comprehend God's inscrutable ways. And man must rest content with the knowledge that God reveals himself to man, which is what happens at the end of Sefer Eov. Personal encounter with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the ultimate religious experience. And man can ask for no more. The intellectual problem of theodicy, as it were, withers away in the face of God's majesty. That is what is intended by the vindication of Eov at the end of Sefer Eov. I move to the post-biblical period. Something very strange happened in the 5th, 4th, and 3rd centuries BCE. The problem of theodicy led to a fundamental rethinking of some of the basic postulates of Judaism. A Jew living, let's say, in the 3rd or 2nd century BCE would have posited the 
problem of theodicy as follows. Why is it that the Jewish people continue to suffer while the pagan nations prosper? Why are the Jews forever caught between the battles of the Ptolemies and the, and the Seleucids? Why have the words of the Nevi'im not been fulfilled? When will all the nations of the world recognize Hashem as the one Lord of the universe? When will the day of Hashem that the Nevi'im spoke about arrive? Now the Jews living in those centuries were not the first Jews to suffer. In the 6th century BCE, the Jews suffered terribly. The Beis Hamikdash was destroyed and the Jews were exiled to Bava. But the prophets Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel and others had offered a very reasonable explanation of that tragedy which befell the Jews in those days. The Judeans had sinned and just as they had rejected HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so too he had rejected them. And by the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, by the Golas Bavel, God was simply meeting out justice. The exilic prophets, prophets called for tshuva. And when after 70 years, the Jews returned to Eretz Yisrael, they dedicated themselves to the Torah of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and they swore allegiance to its every jot and tittle, thereby assuring themselves that the tragic events of 586 BCE would not reoccur. Yet despite their observance of the law, the Jews still suffered. In the 3rd century BCE, Jews were often victims of Seleucid or Ptolemaic expansion. In the 2nd century BCE, Jews were openly persecuted by Antiochus. This time it could no longer be maintained that Jews were suffering for their sins. For indeed, the vast majority of Jews were pious and were loyal adherents of the Torah. Moreover, it was precisely the most pious Jews who were persecuted. The Hellenized Jews, those who assimilated to the demands of an Antiochus, were thriving, while the Jews who studied Torah and observed the laws of Shabbos, circumcision, and so on, were being persecuted relentlessly. The prophetic books did not seem to provide an adequate explanation for this turn of events. And so the Jews began to look elsewhere for a solution. A series of concepts, formerly of little significance, were now assigned greater weight. That is, notions that are in the Torah and that are in the earlier Nevi'im, but were not taken very seriously, were now taken very seriously. <coughs> These concepts include the notions of resurrection, of Tchiyas HaMesim, and an afterlife, Olam Haba. The new theology is called by modern scholarship apocalyptic, the word apocalypse meaning the revelation, the uncovering. And it found expression in the literature which we today call apocalyptic literature. But the most popular representative of this literature is a Sefer in Tanakh, Sefer Daniel. The underlying principle of apocalyptic thought, which is older than Sefer Daniel, it's in the early Nevi'im as well, is that all world events are part of a master plan long ago ordained by a Baruch. 
The past, the present, and the future are all preordained, predetermined. Every human being is free to act as he pleases. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu has long ago established the sequence of nations that will rule this world. Ultimately, justice will prevail. But before the end of time, it need not prevail. Therefore, the Jew need not be unduly disturbed by persecution, and specifically by the persecutions of Antiochus. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in his inscrutable wisdom, planned it that way. And indeed, if you look at the Mepharshim on Sefer Daniel, who understood clearly what Daniel was referring to, Daniel predicted the very persecutions by Antiochus. Instead of being disturbed by the persecutions, the Jew found consolation in his suffering. For just as this part of God's plan had been fulfilled, so too the rest of God's plan would be fulfilled. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will right all wrongs. Those who remain loyal to him will prevail in the end. This response to theodicy addresses itself largely to the problem of moral evil. We move into Shas, to the Talmudic period. When we come to Chazal, we do not find a systematic treatment of the problem of theodicy. Instead, we have a variety of personal views, most of which elaborate upon everything I've said previously, namely the views in Tanakh, and specifically the views that are seen most clearly in Sefer Daniel, the apocalyptic solution. What troubled Chazal the most and the problem they focused on was the problem of Tzadik Viralo, Rosho Vitovlo. And Chazal had a variety of answers, some of the more famous ones, Brocha, Zayin, Omeralef. The righteous man who prospers in this world is entirely righteous. The righteous man who suffers in this world is not entirely righteous. The wicked man who prospers in this world is entirely is not entirely wicked. The wicked man who suffers in this world is indeed entirely wicked. Much more picturesque is the famous Gemara in Kedushin. Man Mahmud Bays. To what in this world are the righteous likened like a tree whose trunk is in a beautiful garden but whose branches extend into a field of thorns and thistles? When the branches are lopped off, the whole of the tree is in the beautiful garden. So too, HaKadosh Baruch Hu brings sufferings upon the righteous in this world so that they may inherit the world to come. Elsewhere in Talmudic literature, we find that Chazal suggests other approaches to evil and to suffering. They tell us that suffering has redeeming value. Suffering leads to introspection, introspection to self-improvement. In a very famous Pasuk, in the first parak of Sefer Bracious, Vayara Lokimes Kol Asherosa Vehinei Tov Ma'od, Chazal say, and the Lord saw everything that he made, is everything that he created considered good? And Chazal answered, yes, because through it human beings attain a portion in the world to come, even Tov HaMavis. Some Rabbis in Shas explained that Eov suffered in order to prove that in any confrontation between man and God, God will prevail. 
Others say that Eov serves as a model of forbearance for all other Jews. Perhaps the most profound comment in all of Chazal is a line in Pirkei Avos, Perak Dalad, Mishnah Tesvav, Rabbi Yanai Omer, Ein biyadeinu lo mishalvas horoshoyim va'aflo miyisurei hatzadikim, which Rabbeinu Yona would translate, if he didn't, if he wouldn't English, as follows. Rabbeinu Yanai says, it is not in our power to explain either the prosperity of the wicked or the sufferings of the righteous. So Rabbeinu Yona's understanding of Rabbeinu Yanai's statement in Pirkei Avos, so too is it understood by Rabbi Vadya Bartanora, the Rav, and in light of what I cited at the beginning of my comments of the Rav, the Rav and the Rav agree that apparently there is no solution to this problem. These are some of the really profound statements we find in Chazal on this subject. I'd like to give you one more sample which relates in part to biblical studies of how well Chazal understood uh, some of the verses in Tanakh that relate to the problem of theodicy. Chazal had a very profound understanding of Tanakh, but you wouldn't always know that if you read the works by modern Bible scholars. There's a famous stira lechora between two psukim in the Torah. On the one hand, in the Aserah Sadibros and many other places in the Torah, we are told, Pokeid avon avos albonim. Kodesh Baruch Hu, in his infinite wisdom, occasionally punishes the children for the sins of the fathers. Elsewhere, in Pashas Kiseitzei, we have a very famous pasuk, Lo yumsu avos albonim, uvonim lo yumsu al avos, Ish becheto yumasu. Children do, are not punished for the sins of the fathers. Ish becheto yumasu. Only the guilty party is punished. Everybody dies for his own sins. The Bible scholars, when they first saw this stira, they said, this proves Tavra Mishi Lo The same Moshe Rabbeinu could not have written both these verses. Let me read to you a Gemara in Masechus Makkas, and I'll come back to the verses I just mentioned. It's a beautiful Gemara in Masechus Makkas, Chofdal Ramral. Amar Rabbi Yosi Berbarchanina Arba Gzeros Gozar Moshe Rabbeinu Al Yisrael Bo Arba Nevi'im Uvitu. Let me have the list. I'll just read the one that interests me at this point. Moshe Omar Poke Davonovos Albanim Boyecheske Uvikla Hanefesh Achotes Hisomus. Alright, we have a Tanner of Yosem Rechanina, lists four Xeros, four decrees that Moshe Rabbeinu issued, and afterwards prophets came along, Bo Arba Nevi Uvitlam and annulled the decrees of Moshe Rabbeinu. One of them, Moshe said, that God requites the sins of the fathers on the children. Yecheskel came along and he annulled this decree of Moshe Rabbeinu and he taught only the soul that sins, it shall die. Well, I have to ask a simple question before we go any further. Why did he tell me that there's a steer between Moshe Rabbeinu 
and Yecheskel, and boy Yecheskel, and who's Mavatel, is a steer between Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe Rabbeinu. Yecheskel said, I'll look at the exact words, Yecheskel said, and this is in Perak Yudches, Hanefesh hachoteis hisomlus, what does it say in the Torah? Yish pucheto yumosu. I know, you know. Why is he telling me that Yecheskel was Mavatel with Moshe Rabbeinu? He said he should have said there's a steer in the Torah. The Marshoi asked the question, and anybody who learns the Gemara really should ask the question. But I think the answer is simple. The answer is because Chazal, as I say, had a very profound understanding of, of the Torah. In Medrash Tanoim, which is a Tanaitic commentary on Tanakh, Medrash Tanoim to the Pasuk in Pashas Kisaitzai, Chazal asked the question. The steer between Poket Avonovos Abonim and Ish Becheto Yumos. Because I'll say, Lo Yumsu Avos Abonim, Loma Neemar, Lufisheru Omer Poket Avonovos Abonim, Shomea Ani Ach Mechuyove Nisas Bezenkein, Tamud Lomar Lo Yumsu Avos Abonim. Look how well Hazal understood Sukim in the Torah. Okay, Ravonovo Sabonim is talking about Akhrush Baruch Hu. Akhrush Baruch Hu has the license, has the license to punish the sons for the sins of the fathers. Only Akhrush Baruch Hu can weigh all the factors that may, on with certain conditions and under certain circumstances, allow that. Okay, Davanovos Abonim is talking about a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Look at the Pasuk, look at the setting. A Kodesh Baruch Hu, it's a description of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, not of Bezdin. Lo Yumsu Avos Al Bezdin is not a description of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, it's a mitzvah in the Torah for a Bezdin. Chazal clearly distinguished between a Kodesh Baruch Hu and a Bezdin. And you don't need Bible scholars to tell me that two different uh, people wrote these two Pesukim. I have no problem with the same Moshe Rabbeinu writing both Pesukim. Moshe Rabbeinu understood. Okay, Davanovos Abonim is talking about a Kodesh Baruch Hu. That's one realm. Dine Shamayim, if you like. Bnei Adam is a very different realm. And as far as Bezdin is concerned, Lo Yumsu Avos Abonim, Bonim Lo Yumsu Avos, Ish Becheto Yumasu. Bezdin can never punish a son for the sin of the father. Only the guilty party can be punished by a Bezdin. Now let's go back to the Gemara in Makos Kofdar Aleph. But cited as a stira to Poked Avonovos Albonim is a Pasuk in Yecheskel Yudches. Yecheskel Yudches begins with a very famous Pasuk. Let me read. Vahidvar Hashem Eilai Lemor. Malochem atemoshlem esamoshel hazeh aladmas Yisroel Lemor. Ovos yochlu boser vishine bonim tikhena. Bnei Yisroel came to Yecheskel. And they're complaining to Yecheskel. They say to Yechezka, what is this you're telling us about the temple is going to fall, the Besamiktish is going to be destroyed, and we're being punished because our fathers were all day of the time of Menashe. And they came to him and they said, is it fair? Our fathers consumed sour grapes, ovos, yoklu boser vishinei bonim tikena, and the teeth of the sun shall be set on edge? They complained to him. What are we talking about? We're talking about dinei odom or dinei shemayim. In Yecheskel. Dinei Shemayim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is threatening to destroy the Beis HaMikdash. In Dinei Shemayim, they're complaining to Yecheskel and they're saying, why is it that the sons are being punished 
for the fathers. And so Yechezkel is a revolutionary. And Yechezkel says to them, all right, it's true the Torah makes a distinction between Dine Shemaim and Dine Adam. In Dine Adam the Torah says the sons can't be punished for the fathers. But I can tell you now in the name of Kodesh Baruch Hu, that Kodesh Baruch Hu is willing now that even in Dine Shemayim the sons won't be punished for the fathers. Look at the Lashon in the Gemara. Omar Rabbi Yossi Barchanina, Arbag Zeros Gozar Moshe Rabbeinu Al Yisrael. When he Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe simply brings the Pasuk of the Kodesh Baruch Hu. Moshe said that Bidine Shamayim HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a right to punish the sons for the sins of the fathers. Along came Yecheskel and he's Mavatel and if you'll ask how could Yecheskel be Mavatel what HaKadosh Baruch Hu says so look at again at the beginning of the prayer of Yudches Vahidvar Hashem Eli Lemor Hashem came to Yecheskel and told Yecheskel if Bnei Yisrael refused to understand that I have a right to punish the sons for the sins of the fathers, I accept their taina, and from now on, I will no longer punish the sons for the sins of the fathers. I will accept my, upon myself the rules of Dinayana. We move to the medieval period. The, medie- the medievalists, of course, inherited everything I've said till now and embellished it. The Islamic Renaissance brought Jewish thinkers into direct contact with classical Greek and Latin literature. And the first attempts were made since Philo to harmonize Jewish faith with classical between God's creative activity, the Briyas Olam, man's freedom, and the existence of evil. In modern times, an attempt has been made to translate these mystical notions into philosophical jargon. This has been done perhaps most successfully by the philosopher Franz Rosenzweig. He discusses this in his magnum opus, Stern der Losung, Star of Redemption, where he argues not only must God permit evil to exist, but in fact God sometimes tempts man, his evil is sweet. All things being equal, if I had a choice of doing good or evil, I might as well choose good if it tastes just as good as evil. Kodesh Baruch makes evil taste even better, so that it really becomes a choice on my part, a deliberate choice if I choose to do good. He gave the famous marshal of the Sambation. As you know, he lived in Frankfurt am Main. And he said, supposing instead of Frankfurt am Main, it was Frankfurt am, am Sambation. Supposing everybody saw in Frankfurt every air of Shabbos, uh, exactly at Shkia. You know, the Sambation threw up rocks, made a lot of noise all week, and on Shabbos it rested. Supposing exactly at Shkia, every air of Shabbos, the Sambation ceased flowing, its turbulence would cease. And supposing every Motsoi Shabbos, 72 minutes after Shkia, turbulence would start again. He said, everybody in Frankfurt would be a Shomer Shabbos. Any question about it? Be, you know, the reform movement would have disappeared overnight. Uh, there isn't the slightest doubt about it. He said, if that would have been the case, he said, man would have had no freedom and indeed there'd be no schar for being a shamashabas. Or, I heard orally once, I've never seen this in writing anymore, that he gave another marshal, supposing that every time a human being said a lie, told an untruth, a huge hammer would come down from heaven and flatten him out. You're out of the game. It wouldn't take very long. 
either there wouldn't be too many human beings in the world, or uh, there'd certainly be a lot of truth tellers. Again, what would be lost would be Bechira. In this context, I will now mention the fourth scholar who has dealt with the Holocaust, namely Dr. Eliezer Berkowitz, in his faith after the Holocaust. None of these scholars that I mentioned prior to Berkowitz invoke the notion of Hester Panim. This would be the Chidush of Eliezer Berkowitz, who in his volume treating this problem identifies Hester Panim is described in Parshish Vayelech, the Chomish, who identifies it with God's withdrawal from the universe so that man can exercise the freedom to choose between good and evil. This notion that I've been developing now is in fact picked up by Berkowitz, but he labels it Hester Ponim, and indeed he applies it to the Holocaust. In short, the very structure of the universe requires that men be free to commit evil deeds. Such freedom must include the freedom to support despotic and totalitarian regimes. It was every man's privilege to sit idly by while six million were slaughtered, as depicted in the famous volume by Arthur D. Morse, while six million died. It is every nation's privilege to sit idly by while terrorists threaten the state of Israel in the Middle East or while Jews are incarcerated in the Soviet Union on trumped-up charges. The question is not why a just God permitted the Holocaust to occur. He must do so in order to enable a just humanity to prevent it from occurring. One line that I appreciate in Kushner's book is somewhere in the middle of the book he says, he's quite correct, Hitler was only one man. One man. The world couldn't stop him. Strangely enough, this approach that I've outlined more easily addresses the great tragedy suffered by Jews, such as the Holocaust, than it does the sufferings of individual Jews or human beings, such as natural disaster, or the category of evil that I described as natural evil. Why is a child stricken with a disease? Why is a man struck down by lightning? I'm not sure that any Jewish theologian has come up with an answer. The attempt, however, has to be made. Here I'd like to turn to a passage from a not well-known 20th century Jewish philosopher. His name was Lev Shestov. Shestov once wrote as follows. A certain naturalist made the following experiment. A glass jar was divided into two halves by a perfectly transparent glass partition. On the one side of the partition he placed a pike. On the other a number of small fishes such as formed the prey of the pike. The pike did not notice the partition and hurled itself on its prey with of course the result of a bruised nose. The same happened many times, and always the same result. At last, seeing all its efforts ended so painfully, the pike abandoned the hunt, so that in a few days, when the partition had been removed, it continued to swim about among the small fry without daring to attack them. 
Does not the same happen with us? Perhaps the limits between this world and the other world are also essentially of an experimental origin, neither rooted in the nature of things as was thought before Kant, or in the nature of our reason as was thought after Kant. Perhaps indeed a partition does exist and makes vain all attempts to pass over. But perhaps there comes a moment when the partition is removed. A philosopher should not be afraid of skepticism, but should go on bruising his jaw. How can you tell when the partition will be removed? I want to conclude, not with a philosopher, but with a passage from Chazal. So let me conclude with the following passage. I don't think there are any easy answers to suffering and tragedy. And as I say, I stress again, Rabbi Yonah, the Rav and the Rav, on the mission of Rabbi Yanai in Pirkei Avos. But I think there is a Jewish response. There's a beautiful passage in Medrash Tehillim on the Pasuk Yancha Hashem Biyom Tzara. And it reads as follows Moshe Lo'av Uben Shehoyu Mahalchin Baderech Venisya Geya Haben Viomar Lo'av Heichlan Hi Hamedina Omar Lobni Simon Zeyehe Biyodcha Imra Isa Besakvoros Lufanecha Harei Hi Hamedina Krovolo and the verse in Tehillim, May the Lord answer you in a time of trouble, the Medrash tells of a father and son who were journeying from a small town to a large city. The son constantly badgers his father and asks, When will we arrive at the city? The father replied, Let this be your sign. When you see the Besakvoros, you will know that the city must be nearby. Such is life and such is death. Where there is the one, there is the other. The Jewish response to suffering and tragedy is the affirmation of life. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lyman, for your brilliant presentation. I ask the assemble to hold off questions to Dr. Lyman until the next lecture is completed. The next this afternoon is the personal ethics of a rabbi, a halakhic view that is going to be rendered by one of our illustrious Rabbi Yeshiva, who is one of the most famous of the younger generation today in our yeshiva. A person who is really done on the Malach Hashem It is my pleasure to call upon her as one of her colleagues to address a very important topic. Okay, what? Okay.